take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. We continue uh, through this gospel, and I love the gospel of Mark. It's a fast-paced, hard-hitting, non-compromised gospel. This morning, I might just ask you, what was the message entitled this morning? What might have been. And when I read those first six verses of the sixth chapter, it's very sad. And to me, it's like in contrast because the first six verses, the people who he really wanted to touch refused to be touched. And so the last sentence of verse six says uh, um, he was going around to village to village in a circuit teaching. And so what he basically did is he took his ministry to some place where they'd listen to him, and then. That sets up perfectly tonight a, a message entitled Changing Your Culture because that's what he wanted to do as we get to verse 7. He wanted to change the culture. So you will stand to honor the reading of God's Word if you're able. If you're not, it's okay. <clears throat> this is God's infallible, inerrant, inspired Word. We'll begin reading in verse 7. He being Jesus, he being Jesus, summoned the twelve. And began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick. No bread, no traveling bag, and no money in their belts. They were to wear sandals, but not put on an extra shirt. Then he said to them, <clears throat> whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick people with oil, and healing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll take our time together tonight. And I pray that you'll anoint this building with your Holy Spirit. That you'll anoint our hearts with your Holy Spirit I pray that nobody can see anything but you and hear no one but you in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, we've heard it said so often that we're almost anesthetized to it. In fact, almost every time I hear Brother Kevin preach, he begins something like this. We're in a mess. We're in a mess as a country. We're in a mess as a culture. We're in a mess as a nation. And I would piggyback that to say... What, what the Bible teaches is sin and evil and bad. Our culture has now embraced in uh, the guise of tolerance. And quite honestly, our tolerant, tolerance has given way to lifestyle. So now we have a culture full of people who are living in direct opposition to Holy Scripture. This is a country that was founded on Holy Scripture. At one time, the Bible was the textbook taught. 
in elementary schools. And I just want to say this, when a country, when a culture, when a church, when an individual turns their back on God, it has serious and severe consequences. Now, as a people, we tend to, when we rehearse or repeat or remind of what's going on in our country, it kind of relieves our stress because our excuse is, it wasn't us who did it. It was our justice system. It was our government. It was our politicians. I mean, it is easy to blame other people <clears throat> because, you see, you and I didn't go in there and remove the Bible as a textbook from the school. You and I didn't go in and then follow and take prayer out of school. Well, you and I didn't go in and, uh, um, and elbow God out of the public arena of society. You know, it's interesting to me as an aside. <clears throat> The United States of America has systematically elbowed God out of the public arena, and so then when a tornado or a hurricane or 9-11 happens, we want to know, where's God? You know, it seems to me like we're, we've dismissed him as a culture. I mean, as early as the late 1940s, the Supreme Court began to eat away at the moral fabric of this country with one ruling after another. I read something, uh, I read something, Kathy, and it was funny to me. I mean, it's not funny what happened, but just the way it was worded. It said, in 1989, the Supreme Court voted 7-2 against creation. You know why that was funny to me? Because they don't get a vote. They can take every vote that they want to. But God still created the, the world. Believe it or not, it's true. Somebody said God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Simpler than that, God said it. It settles it. It don't matter what we believe. It's our problem, though, because we are his followers, and we are called, as you hear me say time and again, to be salt and light in this world. And any credible study of American history tells us that if this country is to come back to Jehovah God, if, they're ever, if we're ever going to be a Christian nation again, if we're ever going to uh, um, rise and, and let the temperature of our spirituality raise toward God again, it will not be at the, at the steps of the White House or the courthouse. It will be up to us, those who wear the name of Jesus, up to us who are the redeemed. It's up to us, the church. And the spiritual direction of this country is indeed controlled by the commitment, the Christ-likeness, the actions, or the inactions of those who are called the church. For me, it is no coincidence that at the very time our country is disintegrating from the inside out. It's the same time that those who claim to know Christ look more like the world than Jesus. And beliefs are being compromised, and watch this, and churches are being closed by the dozens. The Pledge of Allegiance is under attack. One nation under God. And we all say, well, yeah, we, they're not taken out under God. Well, you know what? None of those four words are true. 
for me anymore. We're certainly not one nation under our present leadership. Never seen the country more divided in its life. And I will just say this to you, and you can charge the stage and stab me, but we're really not a country under God unless we have moved out of under God's blessing until under God's hand of judgment. And like it or not, folks, the fault lies at the doorstep of the church. People need to see Jesus. This country needs to see Jesus. This nation needs to see Jesus, the authentic Jesus, the real Jesus. And the only way they will see him is through you and I, his church. Yet, sadly, more times than not, people who claim to know Christ in this culture, those folks who have, um, have the capacity because, of, because uh, they're seeking the Lord, they have the capacity of knowing the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and allowing the Holy Spirit to change us into His likeness, with His belief, with His principles, with His value, motivating His life, demonstrating His love. Most of the time, they don't see us doing that. Most of the time, they see us voting with the same values that they have, our pocketbook, our comfort, our convenience. Most of the time, they see us talking the same language that they talk, having the same priorities that they have, and literally seeing our lives is no different from theirs. You know, I read a report that was disturbing to me is probably not the most updated reported, but there was a time in recent years where the divorce rate in the church was greater than those outside the church. God help us. Now for the past few minutes, I've taken just a few minutes to kind of build the case about our disintegrating culture. You know why? Because our country, our country is in a mess. Our culture is disintegrating. And quite honestly, because the thought is present on my mind, somebody told me recently, and uh, you know I read a lot, but I don't read much fiction. I just don't pick up fiction. Somebody suggested to me a book called The Harbinger. Now let me just tell you how funny this is. The Harbinger by Jonathan Kahn. I picked it up, laid it on my nightstand, <clears throat> And then, I believe it was my birthday, Chris, my son-in-law, gave me a copy. You think God was trying to get my attention? Because I had not started it. Did not start it till about two weeks ago. The Harbinger is a fiction. Now, Wayne told me he's read it. How many of you have seen the book and read it? Oh, good. So you know what I'm talking about, those who have read it. It's based, literally, it is a fiction book that compares Israel to America, and it's based on this, it kind of runs around this text right here, Isaiah 9 and 10. Now, if you don't remember Isaiah, you need to go read Isaiah, and you need to read Jeremiah, and see how God brought judgment on his own people for abandoning him. I want you to see this. The bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with cut stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll replace them with 
cedars. And his, the premise of this story is that in the Old Testament, God lifted the hedge from around Israel because of their disobedience, and he allowed, he allowed the enemies to come in and destroy it. And he makes a pretty good case in writing fiction that God has now lifted the hedge around America. I'm sure it was written before Benghazi. You know, there was a time when the American embassy could sit and they could fight all around that embassy, but they wouldn't dare encroach on U.S. soil. The hedge has been lifted. Obviously, when you read this up here, the pictures come to your mind about 9-11. The bricks have fallen. And the aftermath of that, instead of us repenting and talking about how we've turned from God, politicians, leaders stood and said, we will rebuild. Watch this. The bricks have fallen, but we're going to, instead of replacing with those old pieces of of uh, a dried clay, we're going to replace them with cut stone. Going to be defiant about it. The sycamores have been cut down, but we're going to replace them with the mighty cedars. You see, folks, I am now more concerned about this country than I have ever been that we have now fallen under the hand of God's judgment. It's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And I believe that every spiritual warning has been ignored. What are you talking about, Brother Jerry? Certainly, I think 9-11 was a spiritual warning, but I think we missed one back in the 90s, the first time they attacked the Twin Towers. You think about this. You think about all the things that's happened. You think about... The bombings, you think about Benghazi, you think about um, hurricanes that are of, you know, in one, in one month period, we had three hurricanes to hit the coast. Tornadoes, I mean, the list goes on and on that God is trying to get our attention. God is trying to bring us to our knees. But you see, the truth is, in our country, we have money in our checking account. We have a sense of freedom. And we've come through enough tragedy with our fists raised that we determined that we'd be okay. And what we've not done as a culture is fallen on our knees before holy God. Admit that we've been wrong. And invite him back into our culture. My estimation, we're on a slippery slope. We're on a slippery slope toward the abyss, and we continue to do business as usual. And the people who are most guilty about doing business as usual are the churches. Our calling, as we're about to get to, is countercultural. It's not cross-cultural. It's countercultural. This means that we are to be culture shapers. This means that we're not to be the thermometer that checks the temperatures of the culture. We're to be a thermostat and control the temperature of the culture. How do we do that and how do we find it in this text? I believe this is a snippet. And in the time that remains, we will not uh, uh, have time to really develop it completely. But I'm going to give you four thoughts of things that we need that we find right here 
if we're going to change our culture. First of all, we need a correct director. A correct director. This is a short way, a fancy way of saying we need Jesus. He is the one that can direct our lives. This culture needs changing. Could I get an amen? And Jesus is the one that can change it. But here's the secret. Just like this morning in the first part of this chapter, he wanted to come in and do a work in the Nazarenes so that they could do a work around them. He wants to come into his church and do a work in you and me so that he can take us to the culture and do a work out there. He took these 12 men... And he called them out and he gave them an assignment. He gave them instructions. And then he sent them on their way. And they went out and had great success. And do you know why they had great success? Please listen, I don't want you to miss this. This is complicated. Do you know why the disciples went out and had such great success? Because they did what he told them to do. And you think about that correct director for our lives and our churches and our country. A personal word is that everybody has somebody that directs their life. You have somebody that directs your life. And you only have three choices. There's only three possibilities for who directs your life. Self, you can direct your life. You can know what's best. You can have the answers to it all. You can know it. Satan, <laughs> do I need to develop that? Or the Savior? By the way, you think you can control your life? All you are is a puppet for somebody named Satan. Because he's not going to let you get any better. He's not going to do anything, let you do anything right. So, when I think about the people that can control our lives and thus our church... I'm reminded of football. Now, everything doesn't remind me of football. Normally, it reminds me of golf, but this time, football, because back in the late 70s, we lived in a town, Milton, Florida. The three years we were in Milton, two years, they won the national championship, I think, in the 4A category, powerhouse. Their coach was Hurley Manning. People who watch football today would not like to watch Milton High School play. Because he's the old Vince Lombardi type of guy that football is three yards in a cloud of dust. Y'all get what I'm talking about? In fact, uh, um, he run that football 98% of the time, just wouldn't throw it. And this was his philosophy. He said, he said you want to know why I don't throw it? I got, I got a quarterback that can throw it. I got receivers that can catch. He said, here's the deal. He said, when I put the football in the air, there's only three things that can happen and two of them are bad. Be intercepted. Be incomplete, or 33% of the time it can be complete. You see, the truth is that I don't like, I really don't like those odds. And when you think about only three possible directors for our lives, it's not really, it's not really uh, uh, encouraging. Because the truth is, most people want to direct their own life, and they want to direct their own life by following their heart. 
I mean, they believed the old cliche when mom said, oh, they, they got a good heart. Problem is, mom's words, bless her heart, didn't line up with the Bible. Jeremiah 79 says that above all else, above all anything else, the heart is deceitful, it's corrupt, and it's wicked. I love it. Every time the preacher says that, I can see people smiling because they say, you know, I don't believe that. That's how the culture got to where it is today. That attitude is not anchored in the Bible. It's anchored in the world. You see, Jesus teaches us that when we follow him like they did, he summons them and he began to send them out in pairs and he gave them authority and instructed them. And he sent them out. Just like them, when we depend on him, he'll give us the correct words to say. He'll give us the attitude to have. He'll give us the places to go. We don't have to like this. Just don't shoot the messenger. But our culture will not change until God's people begin to follow him and let him lead their lives. We have to have a correct director. second thing we have to have is courageous dependence. A courageous dependence. When I read verses 8 through 10, I am reminded of how dependent they were on, on Jesus. He said, guys, don't take anything. Just take you a walking stick to give you a little relief, but don't take anything else. Just follow my directions. He said, make no provision for the flesh. Go and share the message that I give you with everyone you meet. Live, act, talk, and show everyone. And then depend on me. Did y'all hear that? Live, act, and show everyone and then depend on me. I think it's a sad, I think it's a sad day when even God's people tend to not do much depending on him for anything because we have become so proficient at being dependent on ourselves and independent from him. question could be how much do we really trust him or how much do we really try to figure out if we try to figure it out instead of trust what happens do we really trust Jesus do you really trust Jesus do you really trust him with your money do you really trust him with your schedule do you Really trust him with your decisions? Do you really trust him with your behavior, your speech? Do you really trust him with your demeanor? Do you really trust him enough to be faithful to him? I think it's a sad day in this respect. I think we've come to the day that people in the church know that our culture needs to change. But we tend to want somebody else to do it. We're called to be salt and light. And, 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 and we will only change this culture if we become the salt and light. If we become salty enough, people get hungry for Jesus. 
if we come light, become light enough that they can see His righteousness and they can see the way to Him. And the only way we're going to do this is by being dependent on Him. Having that correct director and then being dependent on Him like they were. Take nothing but me with you. The third thing we're going to need is a clear discernment. A clear discernment. Now, discernment is not really a um, word we use much today. Literally, the, the dictionary says something like to perceive something hidden or comprehend something hidden. When I read verse 11, and I see you have to be, we have to be discerning, I know that that's going to cause many Baptists heartburn. Why? Because we basically live and have grown up in a live and let live society. We um, have grown up in that, in that society that says um, when people come to church one time, maybe they walk an aisle, join the church, they're good. If you read that verse 11, I just remind you, if you've got a red print Bible, the whole verse is in red because Jesus said it all. And Jesus said, go out and share the message. And I'll just give you three thoughts. First of all, just consider these. Everybody deserves, everybody deserves an opportunity to hear the gospel. Number two, everybody deserves the ability to make an informed decision. Now, though we're good thus far, watch this. The third truth is this. Some people are going to reject the life-changing gospel and nothing is ever going to change their mind. And we're called to discern. We're called to discern when someone rejects our Lord, when somebody expresses unbelief, even Jesus moved on. I fear we spend so much time trying to retrieve those that Jesus would have shaken the dust off his feet and gone and shared the message to someone who is really reachable. I'm convinced that this discernment is to know when to go and where to go and to whom to go. And the discernment comes from a leading of the Holy Spirit, of of leaning on Him and letting Him lead us to the person, to move from person to person to share the gospel with. I can tell you the past couple of weeks, I've visited on our visitation, visited somebody this past week that really need the Lord, really need the church. But when I walked away from that, I will just tell you, we can send teams back for the next year, and they'll never come be a part of God's family. Their mind is already made up. You see, if we're going to change a culture, we're not going to change with the people who've already rejected, already had the opportunity and rejected, and we just go back beating our heads against the wall. What we're going to do is we're going to find those folks whom the Lord is working on. He's already working in their heart, so they're soft to the gospel. They'll listen. They'll understand. They'll re- receive. I'm reminded of Rod and Hope. Most unlikely people sit right on the back row. Most unlikely people. And boy, I just want to tell you something. 
they got a bad case of Jesus and hadn't got over him yet. And he's changed their life from the inside out. Discernment is vital for who we go and, and how we go and when we go. If we're going to change our culture, we need to be consistent about going and discerning who and where we go so that people can hear the unchanging message of the gospel. If we're going to change our culture, not only do we have to have a correct director, courageous dependence, and a clear discernment, but the last thing I see in this verse, we need to have a compelling deployment. Compelling we don't go just because we want to. We go because we have to. We go because we were the ones who were lost in sin. We were the ones on the way to hell. We were the ones without Christ. And He came and He saved our life. And somebody else is in the same shape. And we're compelled to go and tell them. For some people, that'll be at work. For some people, it'll be on the golf course. For some people, it'll be at the football game. For some people, it may be in the mountains. For some folks, it may be on the beach. For some folks, it may be next door or the office Right down the hall. But I want you to watch how Jesus deployed his disciples. I don't think it's up here, Brandon. If I put something else up there, you can put it. it, right? Okay. Let me just tell you three things that I see here. First of all, first of all, this compelling deployment. I know this is a military term. Isn't it interesting today we don't want to think about ourselves in the military sense? Anybody remember this old hymn? Onward, Christian soldiers. You remember how many fight songs there used to be right after the war? Because we saw ourselves as an army under the banner of God. As an army, here's the first word that went out on mission. Jesus sent them out on mission. When I read uh, verse 12, he summoned them. Verse, uh, verse 7, verse 8, he instructed them. And then he said to them, in verse 12, So they went out. They were on mission. It seems to me that this is a precursor to Matthew 28 at the end of his life when he would say, All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Have you ever considered something? If you find it, you come and tell me about it. I know a lot of the Bible, but obviously I can overlook some things. But I cannot think of one place where Jesus told the lost to come to church. He did say, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't tell the lost to come, but listen, he told the saved to go. I want to say that again. He didn't tell the lost to come, but he told the saved to go. In our culture, I'll just tell you this. If we live like Christ, if we live like Christ, you might be surprised how many lost people come. Tom Rayner tells us, that something like 10% is just waiting for an invitation. Something like 10% of the culture is just waiting for an invitation. You know, I think I misquoted that. I think it's 29%. 
And like 8 or 10% is waiting for somebody to tell them about Jesus. And they'll be saved. Just wonder if the people in this room just spoke to three people apiece this week about joining them in worship next week and saying, hey, you know what? Come sit with me and uh, uh, I'll take you out to lunch afterward. What would it mean to you if you came and you took somebody out to lunch and, oh, by the way, while they were here, they got saved? Here's what I'm convinced of. This culture will not change until the people in this room and rooms just like this, you and me and other fellow believers that are gathered even tonight until we begin to understand that Jesus gave us a mission. It's stated at the end of Matthew, at the end of Mark, at the end of Luke, at the end of John, at the first of Acts. You think he wanted us to get it? It's a mission. The deployment begins with a mission. And then, just like we talked this morning, they heard the message. They heard the words, but they never picked up the message. The second thing is the message. Have you ever, he, said, he said they went out and preached that people, here's the message, should repent. It's the message that John the Baptist started with. It's the message that Peter started with. It's the message that Paul started with. And by the way, it's the message that Jesus started with. People today are so accustomed to hearing watered-down messages that they are really confused about the truth. Let me just give you an illustration. You know, many of you know that I went to, Deborah and I went to Chattanooga Friday afternoon. And we had a memorial service yesterday morning for a 20-year friend, one of the first guys that I led to the Lord back in, um, in Biloxi. Oh, by the way, put a pause there, put a period there. The weirdest time... And all the earth is Eastern time. Those people stay up late and get up early, and that's why they all need beauty sleep. It's the weirdest thing in the world. But we were up there, and and uh, I was the only preacher for Mac. Um, he was a car salesman. <laughs> I told the story that when I when he and Betty came to the church, in fact, the way they finally came to Sunday school is Betty went into her husband. She, um, she went into Mac and she said, Now look, we have this young son and he is not going to grow up a heathen. So you don't have to go with me, but he and I are going to Sunday school. This was Max. All you Sunday school teachers, Van, Huey, you'll love this. Max said, <clears throat> Well, that's fine, but I'm not going to Sunday school unprepared. You go get me a Sunday school book and I'll read the lesson before I go. Wouldn't you like to have a classroom full of people like that? Read the book, and he came that Sunday, and uh, I went to the house, followed up visit, and I'll never forget it. He had a King James Version Bible, and he said, first of all, preacher, I can't become a Christian. And I said, why, Mac? And he goes, because I work for Pat Peck. This was a car dealership, very successful car dealership. He said, and Pat became a Christian, and he'll give away the barn now. Somebody's got to watch the business, and it's got to be me. And I said, Mac, that's no reason to let your, uh, let your spiritual life go by the wayside. Then he picked up his King James Bible and he said, besides that, I don't understand these words. It's almost like Greek to me. And I said, come by Sunday morning. And I gave him a, Jerry, you remember that old NIV student Bible, the first one that came out, paperback. 
And I gave him one of those Bibles. I said, take that home, read it over. We're starting a revival that week, and on Monday night he came in. Stopped at my door. The preacher and I were standing there about how prayer, and he came in. And he said, hey, preacher. And I said, yeah, Mac. He goes, I'm ready. And we prayed, and he received Christ. Now, Mac wasn't a perfect person. He had demons, particularly the demon of alcoholism, chased him all his life. But in that service, I was able to share the gospel, just a simple message from the 23rd Psalm, and I was amazed. After the service, the number of people who came by and said, I've never heard a message like that before. You see, we do nobody any, we do nobody, we do nobody any favors by compromising God's message. It is a message of repentance. It is a message of forgiveness. It is a message of hope, and it is a message of life when it's given correctly. But if there is no repentance, there is no hope, there is no eternity, there is no forgiveness, and there is no life if you don't preach repentance. That's what they went to preach. They went out and they preached that people should repent. The mission, they had to go. The message, repent. And the third thing, the miracle. I love this part. In their context, they drove out demons. They anointed the sick with oil. They saw many people healed. Today, we don't give much thought to miracles. But may I just say this to you? If we would ever, not just the preacher from the pulpit, but in our lives, if we would ever give the uncompromised message of the Lord as we go on our mission, miracles will happen. Lives will be changed. The Holy Spirit will do the work. And it will ultimately impact the culture. And society will be made new. It's not dependent on the courthouse or the White House. It's dependent on God's house. And Jesus said, I will build my church in such a way that the gates of hell can attack it and overcome it. I will build my church that it will stand against all hell can throw against it. But here's the kicker. The gates of hell are supposed to be the stationary gates. The doors of the church are supposed to be in motion. The gates of hell have decided the battle lines and our Lord has decided that we're to overtake the gates of hell. Here's how we got it upside down today. Church after church after church has circled the wagons and become stagnant and stationary. And the gates of hell are attacking the gates of the church. And in our culture, we're losing because we were not designed to fight a battle like that. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. We want to change our culture. We'll do it with the cross of Jesus, with his message, with his mission, and seeing him do miracles through us. And if we choose not to let him direct our lives, there will be no hope. Let's pray.